Our Father, we're grateful that you've brought us together on this uh, Sunday morning. And I thank you for these friends who are here. I pray that you'll give us um, a due sense of your mercies and your graces in our lives. Um, a lot of people battling sickness uh, in our community. I pray that you'll bless these homes. In Jesus' name, amen. Don, are you getting the door? Thank you. Um, okay, so sorry about last week. I, um, we've The devil has visited our home, so if you know any exorcists, feel free to send them over. Um, and yeah, it's just going around right now, I think, and we, we, we got it as well. Um, so I, I put the card just a little bit in reverse, and then we're going to move forward. This is a class on the Old Testament and the Trinity. And we've thrown a lot, a lot of, uh, a lot of data at you so far. And there's a few things that I wanted to say by, by way of, of beginning to get us out of the gate this morning. And, and it's on an interpretive, uh, some interpretive matters. Again, how are we reading the Bible? In fact, as I thought about this class, I almost wonder if that would be a, be- a better title, um, the right glasses for reading the Bible. You know, what, what kind of glasses do we read? And that's, that's actually a very important um, issue to think through because the Bible as a material object, you know, black words on a, on a white page that people can buy, um, you know, can be read in multiple different ways. And you see these reading strategies all over the place. And if postmodernism, whatever that canard is, means anything, what it, what it means, I, I don't think it means the dismissal of any interpretive theory, a kind of relativistic, we're all floating on a sea of nihilistic meaninglessness. I, I don't think that's really what postmodernism is after. I think what postmodernism is saying is there's no inherent ability for one narrative for one story, for one interpretive vehicle to be the one by which all others are to be judged. Um, that's a kind of philosophical, I think sort of even Joe and Jill on the sidewalk understanding of what it means to now read texts. Uh, uh, one of the, the practitioners and the more important practitioners of this thought is a fellow by the name of Jacques Derrida. Um, and Derrida uses the illustration of the tower, the Eiffel Tower in, in Paris. How many of you have been on type, top of the Eiffel Tower in Paris? So I took, you know, three years ago, um, four years, yay, four now, um, I took my children and to the Eiffel, we were there in Europe, we went to the Eiffel Tower, and so I took Jackson and William to the top. You know, the, the other ones were too small, uh, so Naomi and Franklin, I think, stayed down, the, all, and the, three, the two boys and myself went to the top. And it's an incredible scene, isn't it? And in fact, it's such an incredible scene that when you look down and you begin to see sort of Paris and design, all of that sort of before you, you think, wow, it's amazing how they organized the whole of Paris around the Eiffel Tower. I mean, it's just sort of built around the Eiffel I mean, It all just makes this organizational whole. And Derrida makes the point, but the Eiffel Tower didn't come until what, the 19th century? Paris was not built around the Eiffel Tower. In fact, if you move the Eiffel Tower and set it right on top of Notre Dame, and then you went to the top and you look down, all of a sudden, my goodness, isn't it incredible how they've organized, you know, Paris around the Eiffel Tower here? It's, it's a move, and I think what Derrida would say is from an interpretive reading strategy standpoint, all of us need our Eiffel Towers. Um, but there's not necessarily an inherent claim about why one location of the Eiffel Tower is better than others. That is a very common understanding on the street. And my response to that, and I think your response to that is what? Well, 
from a certain standpoint, that's certainly understandable and rational. But from a Christian confessional standpoint, we give an account for why we believe a Trinitarian set of glasses, a a certain understanding of who God is, why that is the narrative by which we read. And, And why is that? Because we confess it to be true. Because something outside of us has um, enlivened. This is the kind of reformed understanding of word and spirit. Something outside of ourselves has opened up our minds and our eyes to see that no, not the Eiffel Tower anywhere is going to work, but actually a certain conception and confession about who God is is going to shape the ways in which we read the Bible. And not just how we read the Bible, but how we view all of reality. Now, for some of you, I would imagine this, especially maybe the more philosophically astute, I would imagine this frustrates you a little bit. Because you hear this and you go, well, I need to be able to seal the deal. I need to be able to prove this point in such a way that it silences all the detractors out there. All the people who raise up and say, no, 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 my Eiffel Tower, or your Eiffel Tower is no better than mine. I mean, how do I give an account of that to win an argument? And I think this is a place where... Again, our confession of word and spirit has to come into the conversation. Um, our confession of faith about God and how we understand the world and read text is not necessarily as something that's persuasive on first hearing to those apart from the operative work of the Spirit. So these Trinitarian goggles or glasses that we have for reading the Bible arise out of the community of faith. It's an article of faith. And they arise out of something that we believe that God has done outside of us by moving toward us in His grace to allow us to read the Bible in this way. Because there are people out there reading the Bible in all kinds of ways. The Bible, I mean, some of you have been on university campuses, you know, the Bible and Shakespeare. Um, the, the Bible and post-colonial thought. Uh, the Bible and queer theory. I mean, these things are all over the place. And interesting people to have conversations with. So I'm not, I don't want to downplay that. But what gives a Christian the sort of chutzpah to say, well, this is our approach to reading the Bible because we believe that the Bible intends these kinds of readers. We believe the Bible anticipates the kind of readers that we are in the community of faith. How do you can you prove to me that's true? And I think the honest answer to that is, I'll pray for you. I I hope that's okay. But I think the honest answer to that is, I, I, I can give you some account of this. I hope that I can talk intelligently about this. But at the end of the day, um, I'll, I'll pray for you and I'll pray for me that God would open our eyes and our hearts to believe that God anticipates certain kinds of readers with this text here. Second thing that I want to say by way of introduction before we just hop right into the Bible. Um, it's very important from an interpretive standpoint to understand that when we're reading the Bible, we are reading words. And this is incredible. We're reading words. Um, words that we can look up in dictionaries and make um, choices, lexical choices about why that word in this particular context has more associative dimensions with this field of, of thinking or being than the other. In other words, we can say this word means that and not that. These two words together, that verb and that subject with these modifiers is doing something on the grammatical level that needs to be attended to. I I know this is super boring, but I love this stuff because this is how I pay the mortgage. That's how I pay my bills. I'm I'm teaching 
you know, I'm, I just finished on Friday. You have uh, 15 students. We're all around the table and we're reading Jonah chapter three together. And I'm like, well, where's the verb? How do you parse it? Where's the subject? Any modifiers there? What's that preposition doing? I mean, if you sat around and heard some of the conversation that we had in my classes at Beeson, you would think, oh my lands, this is like, um, you know, grammar school 101 just with a different language. And my answer to that would be, that's kind of what it is on some level. We're learning to read words. And we're learning to think about sentences. And we're learning to think about how one sentence then links to another sentence in a larger discourse pattern of communicative meaning. And that's what we're doing. We're learning to read texts. I, I do love this, by the way, from the standpoint of the old um, Oxford-Cambridge model of ex- education. If you ask an o- Oxford 18-year-old, 19-year-old undergrad, what are you studying? Their answer would be, I'm reading for English. I'm reading for history. I'm reading for art education or art history. I like that. I mean, if you ask the students where I teach, what are you doing? I hope the right answer would be, we're learning how to read. We're learning how to read words. We're learning how to be close readers of texts. That matters. So when you're, let me bring it to the world of Advent. When you're sitting in a small group or a Bible study or you're somewhere in the orbit of this church or maybe out in the community not connected to this church and you're reading through Philippians and you're coming through Philippians and you're trying to think through what does Paul mean in Philippians 2 verse 1 when he moves from this statement to the next statement, I'm trying to put that together. That's an important theological task. In other words, sometimes I think we might feel like the words of the Bible get in the way of me trying to make a theological statement. I want to just kind of wrestle with that so that I can then say something else about it. Whereas the church fathers would say, all of the theological stuff that we're talking about, and I want to talk a little bit more about this morning, but all these theological categories that we're giving you, Irenaeus, if he came in, second century theologian. All these categories that we're giving you for thinking about reading the Bible are all toward one end. Well, what is that, Mr. Irenaeus? Namely, so that you can go back and read those words. The words of the Bible. They matter. Um, I like Calvin. You know, I make jokes about asking Calvin into my heart, but I really do think Calvin's someone special in the history of Christian theology. And I have Calvin's Institutes on my shelf. How many of you have Calvin's Institutes at home on your shelf? If you want to be among the elect. <laughs> I don't want to get too personal here, but... You know, when you meet Jesus, you might want him in tow. I don't know. Um, but, you know, if you if you have Calvin's, you know, institutes on your shelf and you were to read his preface to the king in France. Um, and Calvin left this enormously profound and rich body of divinity that people are still studying to this day. To this day, people are studying that 16th century body of divinity. But if we ask Calvin, if we let him tell us why he wrote the institutes, His answer is very straightforward. I'm writing these so that people, lay people, theologians and pastors, can have a lens for now going back to reading the Bible. In other words, the Institutes was not, now I'm going to do all my Bible work, Bible, study the Bible, study the Bible, do hard work on that, and then I'm going to give you the sum of the body of doctrine that you can take away with. The gist of what the Bible, and what the Bible's talking about, and what it's claiming, now you have it, you can take it with you. That's not Calvin's ordering of his knowledge on this. 
What's his ordering of his knowledge? This move. I'm giving you this body of divinity so that you can then go and do the real task of theology and Christian uh, discipleship, which is what? Reading and studying the Bible. Now, so I'm making a claim here about the importance of the words of the Bible. They matter. Syntax, verbs, nouns, parts of speech, all of that matters when reading the Bible. But here's the next move that I wanted to emphasize this morning. But we never separate our reading of the words of the Bible from the subject matter of the Bible. I'm going to say this again and I want to parse it out a little bit. We never separate our reading, our close, tight, microcosmic reading of words in their context. We never separate that from the subject matter of the Bible. And what is the subject matter of the Old and the New Testaments, two Testaments in one canon of Christian Scripture? What is the subject matter? God's revelation of Himself by the Spirit in His Son. That's the subject matter that holds the Old and the New Testaments together. It's a confession about the triune character of God so that when I'm wrestling with the words of Isaiah and I'm wrestling with the particular words of Psalm chapter 8 and what the psalmist is doing there, when I'm wrestling with the words of Samuel and Kings and Leviticus and Philippians and John and Revelation with all of their diversity, with all of their pluriformity, with all the differences there, with all the different kinds of genre that you find there, I'm never separating my reading of those particular texts from the subject matter of the entirety of the Bible, namely... God's revelation of Himself in His Son by the Spirit. That's crucial. Why, why do I say this? Well, because, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to shoot some birds out of the sky here. Okay? And, and again, it's just to, you know, so I don't bury the lead. And what's the bird that I'm trying to shoot out of the sky? That biblical texts, which are historical, I want to affirm that. The Bible's not born out of a vacuum. How much of the Bible is cultural? How much of the Old Testament is born out of the ancient Near Eastern world? How much of the New Testament is born out of the Greco-Roman world? All of it. I mean, as one of my, my colleagues says, from Genesis all the way to the maps, I mean, the whole thing is cultural. It's not like that little bit's cultural, that little bit's cultural. All of it is. I mean, the mere fact that the Bible comes to us in Hebrew and Greek is making a cultural claim. This is born out of a particular time and place that is not our own. All right? But that claim um, has, I think, gone... There, there have been um, certain kinds of follow-up ideas to that that don't follow, to my mind, from a Christian theological perspective. And what are those? And because these texts are born out of particular historical moments, their significance and their meaning is locked in those particular historical moments. It can't, have you ever heard this before? I have. It can't mean more than what it meant. You heard that? I've heard that a lot, actually. It can't mean more than what it meant. Well, what is that? What is? It, what are you getting at there? The text's significance, its interpretive value, its theological value, cannot mean more than that initial moment of interlocution or communication between the author of the text and the original recipients. It can't go beyond that. It has to mean what it meant. It can't mean more than that. That turns me back to my initial claim. We never separate the words of the Bible 
which have been given their own identity from the cultural and historical world out of which they come, we never separate those words from the subject matter of the Bible itself. So in some sense, I'm not all that interested anymore about the mind of Moses. Now, this is a little bit tricky here, and some of you might start to sweat a little bit. I'm not all that interested in the mind of Moses. I'm really not all that interested in the mindset or the psychology of Isaiah or Jeremiah the prophet, except insofar as the texts that they left us want me to make a big deal out of those matters. If the text is making a big deal out of it, then I will. But as far as the historical persona that gave rise to these texts, and there's a sense in which their biblical books, their canonical deposit, has been detached in a way to do a work that goes beyond them. Let me give you a few examples of this. Isaiah chapter 8 and Isaiah chapter 30 make these really fascinating claims from Isaiah, the historical prophet. He looks at his disciples and he says, hey, write this down for a future generation because the current generation can't get it. Uh, Isaiah chapter 40, uh, verses, I don't know, 5, 6, 7. The grass withers, the flower fades, all flesh is grass, but the, some of you know this, the word of the Lord stands forever. Here's a fascinating little fact for you on the book of Isaiah after chapter 40. After chapter 39, as you move into chapter 40 with that claim right at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 40, you never have in the rest of the book of Isaiah one prophetic persona mentioned again. Isaiah's name is never mentioned. Other prophets are never mentioned. Cyrus is mentioned, the king of Persia. Abraham is mentioned. But a prophetic figure, not mentioned and what's the point of this? The central dramatic character of Isaiah after chapter 40 and following and the whole of the book is the word of the Lord, which stands and remains forever. Prophets come and go. Isaiah's kicking up daisies somewhere, right? But guess what? I'm still teaching his book in classes. You're still studying his book in Bible studies. And why are you doing that? Because you want to hear the word of the Lord that's attached to these words. Right. So these are kind of big interpretive claims. And I hope that we have, aren't you know drowning in the deep end of the pool. Um, but these interpretive claims are really crucial because this stuff matters in the public square. It really does. I mean, all we have to do is start getting into Lent or even Chris and Advent, and you start getting the Christmas specials, and everything that you will see by and large on these specials is driven by that historical notion that I'm, that I'm trying to shoot out of the sky. Namely, texts, biblical texts, can't mean more than what they initially meant. We're locked in that world themselves. Okay. So let me stop for a second. You want to fire anything back? You want to ask any clarifying questions? And then I want to look at creation. Uh, this morning a little bit. Anything? Jane? Just for clarification. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. What I'm refuting is the notion that texts are reduced to their historical moment and they have to stay there. That's 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 what I'm that's what I'm trying to say is problematic, I think. And and again I really do want to be nuanced on this. I'm not downplaying the great value that comes from all the cultural and background studies that you do to kind of help you make sense of that text. It can be very, very helpful. But what's happened with modern biblical studies 
as it has allowed those interpretive matters, which are helpful to get into the driver's seat of the interpretive car. I'm just trying to say, I want them in the car, but let's keep them in the back seat. They're, they're illustrative. They help me understand the words there maybe in a better way. They, they, they provide some light that I didn't have before, but they don't substantiate the text. Now, let me, let me just say, I wasn't planning to talk about this as long, but it's, a, it's an important point. I mean, this has massive implications for the church's understanding of the Bible, because this is the follow-up on that. All of a sudden, now here we are on the far side of the 19th century. The archaeological discoveries over the last 200 years are enormous. I mean, it's actually, it's kind of mind-boggling to think about the texts that are discovered. And here we are in the 19th century, and Tischendorf is in some monastery, and I think in Egypt, and walks into the basement, and here are these monks, you know, they, they run out of wood, so they're burning manuscript pages. And he's like, what are you burning there? Ah, that's the Bible! They didn't know if they were burning. These, are, these were massive discoveries of text. 1948, they discovered the, discover the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, and if you see the New York Times piece on, uh, on, on this new technology that came out of the University of Kentucky, did you read this? Absolutely fascinating. So here they discover all these texts in the Judean desert, 1948. Um, and, that, and they've also discovered texts outside of the Qumran community in various other archaeological locations, like this synagogue on the east side, I guess, of the Dead Sea. We're talking about early first century, the days of Jesus. Well, the, 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 the scroll that they found was completely burned. Um, if they were to even try to open it, it would have just fallen apart. So what did they do? I mean, here's some, some wisdom. It's almost like back to the future stuff. These, these people who discovered these, these parchments, these scrolls, um, from the first century said, in the 1950s said, well, let's keep it aside. We don't do anything with them. And maybe technology will catch up. Well, guess what? It has. And the University of Kentucky apparently devised this infrared schema where they could actually now take that through infrared, I don't know, port, um, uh, framing and unfold that scroll without even touching it. So they're taking pictures of it from multiple angles and they're unfolding it. Right, And then by infrared scanning or whatever, they're able to draw out the letters on the parchment. And we're talking about something that looks like charcoal. And they're now able to unwrap this scroll, and now you can actually see letters there. And guess what Emmanuel Tov, who's the, I call him El Hombre of Hebrew textual critics, what he says when he looks at this scroll, he goes, oh my goodness, this is Leviticus. And it's an exact match to the medieval text that's the basis of our Hebrew text. Incredible. I mean, all these things, I mean, really fascinating. So the point is, we have made incredible discoveries um, that have helped us understand the Bible in new and exciting ways that Luther had no idea about. Calvin, clueless. Uh, Aquinas before them, not a clue. St. Augustine, I mean... He's in the dome at Beeson. You know, we have like 16 videos. He's in the dome up there. I'm, I'm never going to be in the dome, right? <laughs> He's in, didn't know Greek or Hebrew. There he is, up there. One of the greatest interpreters of the Bible in the history of the church. No clue about any of this stuff. So this raises some significant questions about how we understand the clarity of the Bible and the, and the way in which the Bible has a presence in the life of the church um, that really, you know, I think resist this notion that these background matters will now substantiate the text. 
I'll give you another example of this with Luther. I mean, for, for example, a lot of New Testament scholarship right now is fascinated by what you call Second Temple Judaism, that intertestamental period. And all of these texts have been discovered and new theories about what the worldview was of the Second Temple. And now this worldview from the background of the Second Temple becomes the lens by which a lot of Pauline scholars are now reading Paul. Well, guess what? Luther and Calvin had no access to that lens. And does that then make their reading, does that falsify their reading? See, these are significant hermeneutical interpretive issues that I think we're trying to wrestle with, with this bird that I'm trying to shoot out of the sky. I want the bird in the car, but I don't. I just, I just don't want it. Um, I don't know. The metaphor is failing me. I don't, <laughs> I, I don't want to ride on its back. Okay. Beth. So I like the car metaphor. Yeah. How again would you say? Because I'm thinking about. I'm kind of thinking about conversations I've had with my parents, and original meaning not being a part of the conversation of how they have looked at, especially the Old Testament. So it's kind of like what's the famous one about? Second Chronicles 7, help me out. <laughs> pray, humble ourselves and pray. And oh, yeah, 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 that's right. Right, 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 right. So how would you characterize who is in the driver's seat in their relationship to original meaning of the text? Yeah, and, and it's yeah, I don't know. yeah. I'm not sure no, I hear you. And, and again, I think part of it is the, the bugger bear that this whole notion of, of original meaning actually is. I'm not sure that's self-evident. All right, but are we getting into, and I, I, I mean, I've been thinking this the whole time we've been talking, the living word. Yeah. That you're talking about, um, when we look at it academically, we look at the word and our initial approach to it is dry. It is two-dimensional. It's on a page. It doesn't have more meaning than what we're reading on that page. But then we get into what John said, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And that makes it a living Bible, because God was living. So when we're reading the Bible, and it jumps out at us as life, like a Rima word, where it has deeper revelatory meaning than anything that was going on at the time when it was written, anything that's going on now, then that also relates to the verse that says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, uh-huh. and tomorrow. So even though Calvin didn't have the Dead Sea Scrolls, he was reading the word as it is living because Christ is communicating with us and giving us what, what we need at the time. So we do all have the same yep. revelatory meaning. Yeah, I think that's an important, I mean, and there's, there's a lot there to unpack. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure I won't do a very good job of sort of unpacking all of it, but I do think he makes some very good points in the sense that we do want to understand the Bible as an instrumental vehicle. In other words, what makes the Bible operative and alive in the life of the church is the fact that God has chosen to attach himself to it by his Spirit, by bringing Christ and making Christ present to us in these reading activities. And that's why the reading, the close reading of the Bible, the preaching of the Bible, the teaching of the Bible, is something that is never done. I mean, you think we're two thousand years into this thing, right? I mean, we're. I love Timothy George's line, the dean of my school. He says, "I want you." He tells church history students this: "I want you all to know that your grandma was not the first person to believe in Jesus." You know, I mean, people have been reading and wrestling with the Bible for a very long time. 
in the operative work of the Holy Spirit. And there's two facets of this, I think. Number one, we would be, we would do ourselves a disservice not to hear the operative work of the Spirit in those moments. I want to hear what Calvin and Luther and Aquinas, how they, how they wrestled with Job. How they dealt with the thorny problems of that book. How they thought through it theologically, but also by reading those words. And at the same time, and this goes against maybe some of our friends from our past, Beth, at the same time I'd want to say, but just reproducing what Calvin said is not responsible either. Because I'm in a current moment now. That's, that's frankly what, 400 years removed or more from, from that moment. So that's the, I think the dynamic that we want to sort of press forward is, Listen, we use all the tools we want to. Now, again, I don't, I'm not, I don't want to, to in any way downplay the academic, intellectual study of the Bible. I mean, again, that's how I pay my bills. Um, I mean, it's important for people to kind of work hard at that. And I would think the people who are teaching and preaching to you, 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 you'd, you'd want them to be working hard at that. Just like, you know, if you go to the doctor, you know, you want the doctor to, to, have to know what he's doing or she's doing. Um, so, I mean, I, I want to take that seriously. But at the same time, I also want to affirm that all the tools that I bring, all the hard work, all the, I use, I like the woodshed uh, metaphor, all the, all the work with the sander and all the work with the lather and all the work with the saws to kind of work with this text can never make the Bible happen. That's what I think you're tapping into. Can never make it happen. The only way that we make it happen is by responsible attendance to our given gifts and reading strategies together, trying to, trying to submit ourselves to those words. They matter. They're there. They're not just arbitrary signs that we can do with whatever, whatever we want to with them. We have to deal with those words. But those words come alive in their particular moment of divine address because God has chosen to do that. And we can never make that happen. And what we do is we expect him, because he promised and attached himself to it, we expect him to do it again and again. That's why whenever you have that moment, right, and you hear the sermon, and it reaches into your heart, or you're reading your Bible, and it reaches into your heart and your mind, or you're in Bible study, and all of a sudden a text that you've wrestled with is starting to open up to you, I mean, that's, that's God's creative, powerful work at this, on display in your life and in my life. I mean, that's just stepping back and going, gosh, he did it again. He's doing it again by making His Word come alive to me in this moment of my existence when I really needed to hear that. My goodness, God stepped in and communicated His very self to me through the medium of these words, these black words on a white page. Um, so the original sent stuff, I mean, again, I, I think there are rocks here that we want to be careful that we don't crash on. The one rock is like an overly subjective view of reading the Bible. In other words, we now collapse the object and the subject. This is a problem, I think. In other words, now I am the subject of the object and we collapse the two and now it becomes a wax nose to mean whatever I want it to mean. Um, but there's also the objective uh, thing that we can crash on as well, that we can think that we can detach ourselves from the reading practice you know, in such a way as to, um, as to then be able to make claims that are completely neutral and self-evident about the Bible. I think both of those are rocks and can be crashed on because what happens is you end up making these objective statements of the, about the Bible that are really backhandedly subjective. My wife and I went 
when we, this is an illustration of this, but when we were first married, I was this, you know, I didn't, I didn't like, I don't like myself back then. Um, it was who I was. Um, you know, I'm in seminary, a little, you know, um, too happy about that probably. Uh, and, uh, you know, my, my father-in-law, who was a Baptist fundamentalist, I mean, serious about that kind of, like, for example, when he says he's teaching Baptist history, he calls it church history. It's kind of a joke that we have. It's like that, that's it. It's church history. Um, so, I mean, he's the real deal. Um, and he asked me if I wanted to go to the Fundamental Baptist Fellowship Conference that was going on in Greenville. Now, I'm a student at RTS. I'm kind of moving outside of the fundamentalist orbit. And I'm like, I don't really want to do this. But Naomi, my wife said, you can go. I want you to go with my dad. But you cannot say one word in the middle of it. That's just is it. I was like, okay, deal. So we went, and my wife's here, my father-in-law's here, we're sitting there, we're listening to this, and I kid you not, I kid you not, this happened. Uh, this is not hyperbole. The preacher who was the man who married my wife and me was up there, and this is a raw, raw, re group of white middle-class males, right? That's kind of the group, right? So they're, they're, he's going, and what is, how does he start the sermon? There are those of us who still believe in the objective character of the Bible. You know, everybody's crying. It's in, it's sort of, it turns into a little bit of a cheerleading ceremony. I'm just kind of looking around. It's, it's a sociological phenomenon. It's incredible. Uh, so I'm sitting there. And after he makes these big claims about we believe in the objective character of the Bible, he preaches out of Hebrews chapter 13. And this was the outline of a sermon based on the objective character of Hebrews 13 what it means to be fundamentalist, what it means to be a Baptist, and what it means to be in fellowship. And I, I just, I'm like, and Naomi's grabbing my leg. She's like, you promised. Don't say a word. But even she knew. She's like, here you go. All of a sudden now, I'm not being honest about my ecclesial and social location, and I'm treating Hebrews 13 as if it's saying that in a self-evident way? I don't think so. I'm not reading that. Um, so I think those are the rocks that we're sort of traveling through. We cannot escape our bodies. We can't. And we can't escape all the baggage that we bring. I bring white middle class male to the Bible. Because I, I, I am one. I can't get away from that. Um, and you do too. Well, you don't. Female. Right? Um, <laughs> but, you know, we bring it. And we can't help it. We can't detach ourselves from our bodies. And God expects that. Again, this is the frailty and the humility and the modesty that comes from our reading practices of the Bible, we have to be responsible. We do the best that we can with the tools that we have. Why? In complete trust and hope that it doesn't rest in our authority. It rests in His to do His work. Yeah, I think that's incredibly likely to be. And it's great. They're really hard tensions. But... Yeah, I mean, press under that. I mean, what do you think the tension is? Because we can't secure it? Because it's not within our power to kind of make it happen? Yeah. At all, I'm not saying that, but it is very life-giving because it, it feels like it's also saying that I matter in terms of the yeah. reading of the text and yeah. my relationship with God. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and another, I mean, just to kind of maybe, what time is it? I don't know, completely lost time. Oh, forget it. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, the, the where I wanted to go today with this was Genesis 1. Is Genesis 1 a Trinitarian text? Heck yes, it is. Without doubt, it is. Not because Elohim is in the plural. Not because of that. Why is it a Trinitarian text? Because God sends the powerful agent of His Spirit to prepare the ground, 
to prepare the water for the effective agency of His Word. Isn't that an incredible move there in Genesis 1? The Spirit, God's breath, goes in the agency of His own breath and person comes and broods over the water. To do what? To prepare the way for the Word to do His work. And by the way, that work is effectual, period. And God said, that's His Word, let there be light. And what do we see? And there was light. And John 1 comes into the frame and lets us know, and by the way, Jesus of Nazareth, this guy kicking up dust in the first century world, He was that agent of the Word by which God spoke the world into existence. Those who are, this gets back to your question, Jane, those who are driven by a historicist interpretive strategy that does not let the text get out of the world from which it originated will not allow that kind of reading. They won't allow it. Why? Because Trinitarian thought, that's a later development. That's 4th century Nicaea stuff. That's churchly stuff. That's certainly not Moses Genesis stuff. I think what we're trying to say is, no, most definitely it is. Why? Because I cannot separate those words in the way in which that text presents itself in the givenness of those words from the subject matter of the Bible. Namely, God's triune revelation of Himself in the Son by the Spirit. Lord, we want to be good readers of Your Word because we really want Jesus. We all need Jesus. And we're hungry. And we're lost without Him. And in Your kindness, You have not left us without a word. You've not left us without your Son. It's not, it's not reduced, Lord, to an intellectual, conceptual frame of being. Your Word, Lord, is your person. And in your person, we find salvation and grace. In your person, we find life. And you've come to us in your Word. So thank you for that. And uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.